0: Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church. And visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. I'm sure every one of us can relate to the idea of uh, remembering or recalling when we were in school and we were in Various science classes where you had to dissect something. Remember that they had to dissect different things, and some of us were really into it. Some of us were grossed out by it. Um, but the idea was you're learning information. You know, you're you you've been taught certain things in the curriculum, and now you dissect this you know animal or portion of an animal in order to you know see what the textbook or the teacher has been explaining to you in the previous weeks and months, and a lot of people approach the Gospels like that. It's a chance to dissect Jesus, to just observe scientifically almost the life and the times of Jesus Christ. Others of us approach the Gospels in a different way, though. Some of us approach the Gospels almost like we're seeing a celebrity or someone that we've admired from afar, and now we get a chance to read about their life, discover their life, and just sort of from a distance, admire uh, their life. But in both of those approaches, there's little life change and transformation. We're merely fascinated with or curious about Jesus. But Mark and all the other, other gospel writers have something so much better for us. They desire that we would interact with Jesus in their gospel writings, and that through that interaction, we should be changed. We should not approach these gospels as a way to dissect Jesus or learn a few fascinating things about his life, his lifestyle, his miracles, or his words. Because none of these gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are simply biographical portrayals of Jesus. In other words, what I mean by that is, Mark, as a writer, did not sit down one day and say to himself, what are all the things I've ever heard Peter and others tell me about Jesus? And now I'll sit down and describe Jesus. I'll talk about what he did in his free time. I'll talk about his tastes and interests. I'll describe what he looked like. I'll get into his childhood. I'll get into his background. I'll get into his career as a carpenter. No, none of those things are found in the Gospel of Mark or the other Gospels. No, every Gospel writer instead wrote not a biography of Jesus's life, but a historical theology, In other words, there's a specific thing that each gospel writer wants his audience to interact with about Jesus so that an exchange can take place. This is, I think, best illustrated by thinking about the book of John. I'm sure many of you have read the book of John before, and if you haven't yet read the book of John, uh, go read the book of John this week. It's a marvelous and powerful book. And John, in his gospel, because it's very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he declares, look, the reason that I'm writing my gospel is so that you might know that Jesus is the son of God and that you might believe in him. John started his gospel by saying, Jesus is the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And every single story that he told, every episode that he chose to recount for his readers, backed up that concept, that Jesus is the son of God and God the Son. And Mark will do the same thing in this book. He will highlight specific episodes and teachings from Jesus's life in order to drive home specific truths about Jesus. Let me give you an example of this in Mark's gospel. Jesus, we know, especially from reading the book of John, did actually spend a decent amount of time ministering in Jerusalem and in the region around Jerusalem called Judea. But by reading the book of Mark, you barely see Jesus in Jerusalem. There will come a point where he turns his attention to go to Jerusalem in order to die, but Mark chooses episodes from Jesus' life that are mostly centered around the region of Galilee, which they referred to in that day as Galilee of the Gentiles. And then, quite often, Mark will follow Jesus out of Galilee to the east, or to the north into exclusively Gentile territory where he'll minister to people who are far from Israelite culture and far from the Israelite God. And Mark is doing this to help us understand that Jesus came to save the whole world, that Jesus came to reach into the nations, and he wants his readers to get that picture of Jesus. But that's not the only theme that Mark is going to highlight in the life of Jesus. All throughout the Gospel of Mark, he will talk about some who are inside and some who are outside the kingdom of God. And usually, it's a big surprise. Jesus' family at one episode is outside, but people who are just sitting with Jesus and learning uh, learning his word as he teaches them, they are inside. Gentiles who seem to be outside are actually in, and the religious leaders are out. It's a constant theme throughout Mark's Gospel. He's always going to portray Jesus as well as on a journey. Jesus is traveling. One of Mark's favorite words is the word immediately because he's just moving from the next place to the next place to the next thing that Jesus has done. And the idea that Mark has is that Jesus' journey is one that we should join today. He's going to highlight how Jesus is constantly asking people not to publicize his miracles until the proper time, and we'll wrestle with that when we get to those passages. And one favorite theme of Mark throughout the whole book is the theme of faith, that we should be people who trust Jesus, who believe in Jesus, and are leaning upon him for our everyday life and experience. No, Mark wants us to contemplate these elements about Jesus. And the word contemplate is probably too soft of a word. I think the better word would be this, confront. Mark wanted to confront his readers with Jesus. You see, it's probable that Mark wrote this gospel for Christians who were living in Rome. They'd been believers for a while. Mark did not wait all that long after Jesus' ascension to write about Jesus' life, but he might have been the first gospel writer to put his writing down in ink. And his desire, it seems, is to revitalize a church who had begun to grow dull in their understanding of Jesus. He wanted his readers to be confronted by who Jesus is so that spiritual formation could occur. Now, listen to me right now. This, I think, is really important for us as we study together through the gospel of Mark. If we say things like this to ourselves, like, I know this story, or I've read this story, or I've read the book of Mark before. I mean, some of you could probably say, I've read the book of Mark 50 times. And if we say to ourselves, like, I know this story, I know about Jesus, we are going to miss what Jesus has for us. How, how, do you, how do you say about the most magnificent being in all of the world, the, the eternal creator, the word who became flesh, how do you say, I you know, I, yeah, I know him? I mean, you say, I know him like this much, but there is so much more that I need to know about him. And Mark wants us to confront that reality. He wants us to say that I want, we want to discover Jesus afresh, to have him shake us to the core, to move us into his reality, and to shape our lives. Jesus Christ is after our hearts, so he sent Mark to tell us about him so that we could be changed. So this is why the theme that I'm going to choose for studying through the book of Mark together is this, follow the servant savior. The, the reason I'm saying it like that is because if you were to sit here with 30 different books that scholars have written about the book of Mark, and you had them stacked up on your desk, and you just took the one at the top, read in the introduction what they think the theme of the book of Mark is, closed it up and set it to the side until you got done with all 30 books, you'd probably find in 28 of them that they say the theme is that Jesus is the servant who came to the world to serve us, who then also suffered and died to save us. He is presented in Mark's gospel as the servant who came to save. A great example of this theme is found in the central verse of the whole book, Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus himself said, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to serve, but he also came to save through his death. But here's what I don't want to do. I don't want to stop with that and say, here's what Mark's about. It's about Jesus, the servant savior. And to have us simply spend a few months dissecting, thinking about him and going, man, it's just so cool. He's a servant savior. That's who he is. Wow. The praise of the Lord. What, who's gonna, who do you like in the Super Bowl? You know, like, <laughs> I don't wanna leave it there. I want us to then follow the servant Savior. That's Mark's desire. He wants us to follow the one that we've discovered in this book. Okay, so that's a little background, a little bit of an introduction about Mark's gospel. But before we look at the verses that we read a little bit earlier, I should probably say a word or two about the guy that actually wrote the book. His name is Mark, uh, he was a young man. During the life of Jesus, he was not one of the 12 disciples. His mother owned a home that had an upper room in it that she would then lend out from time to time to Jesus and his disciples when they were near Jerusalem. Uh, That room was the room that Jesus and his disciples used for the Last Supper. It's possible that it's the room that they used for the 10-day church prayer meeting before the Holy Spirit fell down upon the church in Acts chapter 1. So Mark had a mother who was interested in Jesus. And from afar, it seems that Mark was also interested in Jesus. And eventually, of course, he became a believer in his own right. He was related to a man named Barnabas, who became Paul the Apostle's ministry companion on their first missions trip, uh, going out to preach the gospel. And because Barnabas knew Mark, uh, he recruited him on their first missionary team. And something happened in the middle of their first missionary trip where Mark quit the team and went back home and then Paul and Barnabas just kept on going and then they came back home and eventually decided, hey, let's go out again on another missionary journey and Barnabas said, I'm down uh, but let's bring Mark with us and Paul said, I am not bringing he who abandoned us on our first journey together and Barnabas didn't like that. Mark and Barnabas were family, and so they had a great dissension, the Bible says. A couple real godly guys arguing the shock of it. And uh, they got to the point where they said, we can't uh, go together. And so Paul went his way, Barnabas went his way with Mark, and they formed two missionary teams. But, uh, but don't be too worried about it. Later on, when Paul wrote some of his epistles, he would say things like this, send Mark, he is useful To me in the ministry. So at some point, they made up together, and uh, Paul, you know, considered Mark a real asset for the kingdom uh, of God. Uh, But what is clear also is that Mark, probably after that episode, became a ministry co laborer with Peter. And many in the early church regard the gospel of Mark as really, in one sense, the gospel of Peter that Peter took everything he had seen in Jesus' life, communicated it to Mark, and that Mark, of course, synthesized it and led by the Holy Spirit, wrote down some of the things that Peter had spoken uh, to him. Now, throughout the whole book, Mark never says his own name. He never says that he wrote the book of Mark, but there is uh, one little moment that many people think uh, Mark is alluding to himself. Remember, uh, his mother let Jesus use her upper room for the Last Supper. Where did Jesus go after the Last Supper? He went to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed, eventually was arrested by a mob who took him to the religious leaders. And none of the other gospels include this little snippet, but Mark includes this. After Jesus was arrested, it says, and a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth around his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And that's the end of this part of the story. Just this random young guy, he's there, he's got a linen cloth like he woke up in the night, he throws his PJs on, and then Jesus is arrested, and they go grab him too, and then he wiggles away from it and he runs away naked. None of the other Gospel writers include this, and it's just really weird. And so most people think that this is Mark putting a little autobiographical statement about himself in there, like, I was a young guy, so here's kind of an embarrassing thing that happened to me, but I was there when Jesus was arrested. I was one of his early uh, followers or early disciples, okay? So that's enough of introduction, though. Let's let's think about this. I want to talk to you today from these eight verses that we read to begin uh, about Mark's Jesus. What did he think about Jesus? I'm gonna show you four things. Here's the first thing. Number one, Mark thought, number one, Jesus is good news. Jesus is good news. He says it this way in verse one, the beginning, this is how he starts his book, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right away, Mark tells us how he feels and what he thinks about Jesus. He tells us, Jesus, I know him to be the son of God. And this will be a theme throughout the whole book of Mark. In fact, one of the ideas is that the disciples don't figure out that Jesus is the son of God until after Jesus rises from the dead. But there are others who shouldn't know, but who do know that Jesus is the son of God. There's an episode, a couple of them, where the demons proclaim him as the son of God. And at the cross, The book kind of ends with a Roman centurion saying, surely this man was the son of God. But it's not until after Jesus rises from the dead that the disciples finally figure out that he's the son of God. But Mark lets us know it right off the bat. Jesus, he is, I'm proclaiming him as the son of God. But don't you like the way the book begins? It just kind of reminds me at least of the book of Genesis. You know, he says in the the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Genesis begins in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And I think this is cool because I think in a sense what Mark is doing with that word beginning is he's helping us look all the way back to creation where God established a beginning because of course before there was time and matter and space, there was no time for God. He lived in an eternal realm and existence. But at the beginning of creation, God established what was a new heaven and new earth, something brand new at that time. But I think in Mark's mind, he sees Jesus as the bringer of a new kind of realm, a new epoch, a new season who brings a new beginning. Uh, if you will, a new creation made possible by Jesus Christ. And to Mark, this is good news. That's why he calls it the gospel of Jesus Christ because the word gospel in that era meant good news. Uh, They would use the word gospel to proclaim good news to their people. If If a military commander was off in a distant country fighting a battle for his people back home, and won a victory they would send a messenger to come back to the people and proclaim good news we have just won an incredible victory and actually this even came to be used for various caesars and even their birthdays good news caesar augustus is so and so or such and such years old but john or excuse me mark takes the word and uses it for jesus that the good news of Jesus Christ has come. And when it says that Jesus is the good news, what we have to understand is he's not just good news like we receive good news or bad news throughout our lives. You know, I got uh, an investment, did well, that's good news. I broke my wrist, that's bad news. I met someone special, that's good news. I, uh, you know, lost my job, that's bad news. And Jesus died for me, that's good news. No, that's not the idea. The idea of Mark is that the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, is the greatest message of all, that it's the best thing that could happen to you, the supreme and ultimate news, and that when you embrace it, it prepares you for God's goodness to flow into your life. And I think this is important because many in our world today are cultivating an idea that if we were a religionless society, good things would happen, which is ignorance because it ignores so many of the religionless societies which have come before us and have dominated and even killed many of their people. But the gospel, when we believe it, when we embrace it, good things happen to human beings who allow Jesus to come into their lives. One great thing that happens is what is going on inside of you. Because when your sin is dealt with, when your guilt has an outlet, when God wipes it away, or when shameful things that have occurred to you that you've been exposed to have a process whereby they can be cleansed from your life through the gospel of Jesus Christ, it has positive moral and mental and emotional effects upon you and your soul. But also, it changes your relationship, not just with yourself, but with God you gain an audience with him, you gain his favor, you gain a good standing with him. And when that occurs in your life and you begin to understand it, you begin to be set free from trying to gain the approval of other people. And we all, I think, would understand that striving for the approval of others leads us to so many negative behaviors in life. So you can be set free within and you can be set free without but it also can bring you into the spiritual family, a place of belonging that you have needed throughout your whole life. You see, the blood of Jesus brings you into the family of God, the flock of Jesus, the body of Christ. You become part of the new humanity that his blood generated. You are no longer outside, but by the blood, you are inside his community, his people group. And you can know that you have been chosen and loved, elected by him because of what he has done for you. So the first thing we see, Jesus is good news. Amen? But the second thing that I I think Mark would show us is that Jesus is the king that we should follow. Jesus is the king that we should follow. Let's read it again in verse 2 through 4. He says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, this voice says, make his path straight. And as a reaction to that prophecy, John appeared, verse 4, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some gospel writers quote from the Old Testament liberally, and some of them, when they do, really offer few explanations, like Matthew does this. He quotes from the Old Testament a lot and really doesn't explain them. He doesn't spend time explaining Jewish traditions and customs, and the reason he does that is because he wrote with a Jewish audience in mind. Uh, Mark, though, rarely quotes from the Old Testament. Most of the time when Mark quotes from the Old Testament, it's not even him quoting the Old Testament. It's him quoting someone else quoting the Old Testament. So he wants to recount a teaching of Jesus. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and Mark puts the quotation in there, but it's not even Mark saying, I wanted to write this. It's, I wanted to write Jesus' teaching, and Jesus quoted something from the Old Testament. But there is one time that Mark quotes from the Old Testament himself, and it's right here in these opening verses. And it tells us there that he quotes from the book of Isaiah. This would come from Isaiah chapter forty. Verse 3. Now, if you looked in your margin, you might see in your Bibles that the quotation is actually from more places than just Isaiah. You'd see it's also from Malachi, and some of your Bibles would also acknowledge that it's also from the book of Exodus. And this was a common thing that they would do in that day. They'd quote from a few different places, mash them up, clip them, paste them together, and then whichever prophecy or whichever quotation was the predominant one, they would say, I'm quoting such and such uh, prophecy or place. That's why it says, uh, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, even though Malachi and I think also Exodus and uh, Isaiah, of course, are quoted. Now, each one of these prophecies, it was meant to conjure up in verse two and three a specific image. Notice that he talks about uh, a messenger who will prepare the way uh, for the Lord and will make his paths straight. Somehow this voice in the wilderness will do this preparatory work to get ready the way of the Lord. And what he's gonna do is he's gonna make the paths straight and he's gonna get that way ready. And the the idea that would have been conjured up by people who read Mark in the first place would have been the idea of a king that was coming to town and all the preparations that they would go through to prepare for that king's arrival. There have been a couple of times uh, in my life, I've lived on the Monterey Peninsula my whole life, there have been a couple of times where we've had sitting United States presidents who have come and visited uh, the community. I think uh, it was President Obama who came and uh, you know did some kind of ceremony, or maybe it was Bill Clinton who came and did a ceremony when Cal State Monterey Bay opened up. And I just remember, it was like the whole peninsula prepared itself for that moment. Everything was on lockdown. Cops were everywhere. It was just a readying for this uh, you know, person to come and visit our community. And that's the idea. They'd find roads that were in disrepair, where there's huge potholes or valleys, and they'd fill them. They'd find roads that had mounds of rubbish and they'd cast them to the side. They were preparing the way before the king came into town. And this speaks of John the Baptist's ministry. He prepared people for Jesus' coming. You see, before John came onto the scene, God had not spoken to the people of Israel for nearly 400 years. It doesn't feel like that to us when we read through the Bible because we come to the end of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, Malachi chapter four, we read it and then we just flip forward a couple of blank pages. There's usually one that says the New Testament and then we start Matthew chapter one. And to us, it takes 10 seconds to go from the old to the new, but for them, it took almost 400 years. And during that time, everything went from bad to worse. But John came onto the scene to revive people's hearts for God, to stir them up about God's presence, and to have them plead with God through their repentance for the forgiveness of their sins. You see, they began to think about God again, and as they did, they thought about God's holiness and his perfection, and then they couldn't help but think about all the ways they had broken God's word, broken God's law. And so they became repentant within the heart, and then they went out into the wilderness, and were baptized in water, and it was for them an outward way to say to God, We want what has happened to us ceremonially through this baptism to be what is occurring inside of our hearts, that we would be ready for you to come into our lives. And so in the image, Jesus is the king. He's the king who is coming, and John prepares people's hearts for the coming of Jesus. Now, we don't have any John the Baptist around right now, do we? That would be a weird sight. You know, if I gave an announcement, you know, it's like next week we got a very special guest, John the Baptist will be here with us. I mean, it would just be wild. We, the, the church would be packed. It'd, you know, we'd have to sell tickets. It'd be, you know, it'd be amazing to see him. But we don't have him present with us today. And so, in one sense, I think it's important for us individually to take the responsibility of preparing our hearts for the way of the Lord. Jesus is that king that is worth following. We should prepare the way for him. When he's trying to work in our lives, when he's trying to work in our hearts, what does he find? Does he find smooth sailing or does he find resistance? Does he find roadblocks? Does he find rubble? Does he find things that we just say, no, Lord, you can't come into this area of my life? Or do we go through the process of saying, Lord Jesus, I want you to have full and total and complete access to all of who I am. I think it's important for us to go through that process of preparing our hearts before the Lord, to daily have time with him, to spend time reading his word, to get away in silence and solitude, to listen for his voice, and when we fail, to allow him to redeem it for his purposes so that we might draw closer to him. All right, but the third thing I want you to see about Jesus is that Jesus is the culmination Of God's plan. Number three, Jesus is the culmination of God's plan. And for that, I want to read to you verse five through seven. Let's read it together back in Mark chapter one. It says, about John and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me, comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. The first thing we read there in that paragraph is Mark says, you know, John was incredibly popular. People were coming out from Jerusalem and Judea to be baptized by him out in the wilderness by the Jordan River. You know, people loved John. They loved his message, They loved the way that he would rebuke the religious leaders. He would say the truth no matter what. He was bold. But he was also just very interesting for everybody to watch. I mean, John gives us this description of him. He wore camel's hair. He had a leather belt. He came from the wilderness. You know, he's just living out in the wilderness. And he ate bugs. He ate locusts and wild honey. He was just like this wild man kind of guy that everybody was so excited about. Now, 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 why does Mark give us this description of John? Why does he describe his appearance? Uh, is it so that you know, he can kind of tell the story? Is this just good storytelling you know, to include the appearance of John? I mean, the, the, the reality is that John, Mark really isn't going to describe other people. He's not going to tell us what Jesus looks like or what Jesus dressed like, He's not even really going to focus on what Jesus ate. He's not going to describe the disciples. He won't really give us this kind of detail about other people. So there must be something about John the Baptist that was important for him to describe. And there definitely is from Scripture. So let me show it to you. Remember I told you how God had not spoken to them for almost 400 years? Here's the last thing God had said. Okay, get ready for this. This is the last thing God had said to them. It comes from Malachi chapter four, verse five and six. God says, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He'll turn the heart of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. This is the last, this is the end of the Old Testament. It's over at that point. And for 400 years almost, you know, what was the last thing that God said to us? Well, he said that Elijah the prophet was coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So everybody's waiting for Elijah to come. Now, when John was born, before Elizabeth, his mother, became pregnant with him, the angel Gabriel came to John's father, an elderly man named Zechariah. And this is what, at least partly, the angel said to Zechariah, Luke 1, verse 17. He said, he will go before him. In other words, John will go before Jesus in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So God had said, Elijah is coming. He's going to turn people's hearts towards the Lord. And Gabriel says to Zechariah then, almost 400 years later, your son is going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah and do elijah e stuff there in Israel. Okay, but there's one more quotation I want to show to you. Way back in 2 Kings, there was a wicked Israelite king named Ahaziah. He fell off the balcony of his home, probably because he had been drinking too much. And he was injured to the point where he wondered, am I gonna live or am I gonna die? Am I gonna recover or am I going to die? And so rather than ask God to touch his life, rather than pray to God, he sent messengers to a foreign country to ask about a false god that neighbored them about his condition. So he's on his w- the messengers are on their way, and Elijah the prophet of the Lord hears about this. So he intercepts these messengers. He says, "I know all about the king. I know all about what has happened, and I have a message from the Lord for you." They're like, "Wow, this is crazy. We haven't told anybody what we're the mission that we're on. What's the message from God?" And he says, "The message from God is that he, yes, this guy will die." So they're like, "Sweet. That made our trip easier." So they went back to King ah- Ahaziah. And they're like, he's like, man, you guys are here really quick. What happened? They're like, well, it's so cool. We didn't have to go all the way to where you sent us because a messenger from the Lord actually met us on the road. And he's like, what did he say? They're like, well, he said you're gonna die. And he's like, what did this guy look like? And this is the quote I want to show you. Second Kings 1 verse eight, they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And the king said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. He knew from that dress that this was Elijah. It was not a common outfit. Now, years later, John the Baptist is described in the same way. And so when John comes out of the wilderness wearing these clothes to a people who are waiting for the appearance of Elijah, it rocks their world. But I want you to notice that even though Elijah was the prophet of all prophets, and that's what they considered him. And even though John was the greatest of all men, notice what Jesus said about him. He said, truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. For all of that greatness, that he's come in the spirit and power of the greatest prophet ever, and that Jesus says there's no one greater who's been born of women than John the Baptist. John said in verse seven, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. In that culture, for a slave to be forced to loose the sandal of their master was considered one of the most menial tasks. In fact, they had rules in place which prohibited many slaves from ever being asked to do something that they considered so dishonorable. It was an embarrassing task to loosen the sandal of anybody. But John, in all of his glory, coming in the spirit and power of Elijah, the greatest man who ever lived, who was born of a woman, this man thinking about Jesus who would come after him prophetically, says, he is so high. He is so lofty. He is so good. He is so magnificent. He is so wonderful that, that I, in, and I'll insert my own commentary, which John would never have said, but, but I, who have come in the spirit and power of Elijah, the greatest prophet ever, who Jesus will say of me that I am the greatest person who ever walked the face of the earth, I would consider it an incredible honor and privilege to climb up to the place where I could be considered worthy to untie and loosen the sandals of Jesus. This is not designed by Mark to make us say, let's think about John's life. Maybe we should practice some forms of asceticism in our modern era. Maybe we should deny ourselves and, you know, live a minimalist lifestyle. These aren't the things that Mark wants us to understand. What he wants us to understand is as awesome as Mark was, Jesus is way more awesome to the nth degree. He's the one that we should center our lives upon and around. This is the message that Mark wants us to understand about Jesus. And I pray as we study the gospel of Mark together that we, like Mark, will be blown away with who Jesus is. Let me show you one last thing that Mark thought about Jesus from this passage. Number four, he thought Jesus inaugurated the age of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. That's why Mark said in verse 8 to everybody, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was uh, actually something that that the prophets of old were waiting for. Prophets like Ezekiel would say things from speaking for God like this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit, God announced to them, within you cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Sometimes we talk about it as believers today. Like, you know, we say, you know, what we believe is that when someone places their faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of them. And we kind of say it like, you know, we know it. That's the truth. And it just kind of doesn't really shock us anymore. But what we have to understand is they were looking forward to this day. To them, it was a radical thing that the spirit of the living God would come to live inside of his people. And what John is saying is really simple. I mean, he's announcing it there while he's baptizing people. I just kind of imagine him like waist deep in the Jordan River. People coming out from the shore to him. He baptizes them and sends them on their way. They go back to the shore. And it'd be very obvious on the shoreline who had been baptized and who hadn't been baptized. All you had to do is figure out who's wet and who's dry? (laughs) I mean, it's pretty apparent. You're there with sopping hair. Your clothes are wet. You just got baptized by John the Baptist. You're dry, bone dry. You haven't been baptized yet by John the Baptist. But he says, look, I'm out here baptizing with water, but there's one coming who when he baptizes you, he's going to take you and immerse you in a way better substance than water. He's going to immerse you in the substance of the Spirit of God so that God's Spirit is dripping off of you, that God's Spirit is working through your life. You see, the reality for us as believers is we cannot get the job done, the mission of Jesus accomplished, without the help and the aid of the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit of God to empower us, to fuel us, to aid us. We need His gifts and abilities his might, his power. The Greek word is the word dunamis, like dynamite. We need his ability in order to do what Jesus asked us to do in making disciples of all nations. But so often we trust ourselves, our own strength, our own ability. And I'd encourage you, don't be afraid of the Holy Spirit. Many Christians in our modern time are afraid of the Holy Spirit, sometimes for good reason because of the abuse of some believers concerning the realm of the Spirit. Odd things being attached to, or I would say blamed on the Spirit of God. But don't let your pendulum swing all the way to the other side of things where you just say, man, the Holy Spirit, that's weird. I don't wanna have anything to do with him. No, he loves you, he cares for you, he has a plan for your life. Did you know that the Bible says that the Spirit of God distributes gifts individually as he wills. Have you ever thought of the Spirit of God looking upon your life and saying, I have a will for you. I have a desire for you. I have a special gift or ability for you that I want to give to you. So I'd encourage you, celebrate this age of the Spirit that we are in. All right, I'm gonna close now by giving you uh, five applications and then I'll close in prayer and, and we'll end our time together. Five applications. Yeah, here's number, here's one. Number one, tell people in your life what Jesus has done for you. You know, just kind of have a habit. Like, you know, when you're in life group, it's not a hard thing, is it? You just tell people like, this is what the Lord's doing in my life. This is what he's speaking to my heart. Talk like that all the time. You know, tell people what the Lord's doing in your life. Tell them what he has done in your life historically and what he's saved you from, but also talk about your current life, you know, because this is the gospel. It's good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just declare it to others. Number two, here's another application. Keep a daily appointment with Jesus. Keep a daily appointment with Jesus. If what we need to do is prepare our hearts for the way of the Lord, then one of the best ways I've found to prepare the way of King Jesus in Nate's life is to really protect a daily time where I'm just with the Lord. He has a chance to, by his word, talk to my heart and speak into my life, correct me when I need it. Keep that daily appointment with him. Number three, recall and celebrate the position that Jesus won for you. Why am I saying this? From this teaching well remember what i quoted to you from matthew chapter 11 about how jesus said there's no one greater than john who's been born of women well the quotation goes on and jesus says but he who is least in the kingdom is greater than him So, what that means is if you're a believer today you have a position before god that is even it's like better than john the baptist status before god You're like, what did I do to deserve that? I'm no John the Baptist. That's right, none of us are as awesome as John was, but you know who's better than John? Jesus, and Jesus, through his blood, gives you his position before the Father. This is beautiful. So celebrate that position. Number four, read and pray through the spiritual gifts found in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. That's where you'll see the largest listings of spiritual gifts, read through them, pray about them, say, Lord, what are you doing in my life? What do you have for me? Don't be one of these people that says, and so now I'll only do things in the church, in the body of Christ, that are specifically what my spiritual gifts are. They're just things in the church that people have to do. We have to serve. We have to lay down our lives together. So don't wait for it to be something that's so perfectly lined up with your spiritual gift, but get in touch with how the Holy Spirit has designed you. And number five, well, we're studying Mark as a church each Sunday. Spend a little time preparing your heart for King Jesus. Okay, what I don't mean by that, and you could do this if you want. You could take a couple hours before you come to church. I mean, this is the 11 o'clock service. I don't know what you guys were doing the rest of the day before this. It's a lot of time, you know. But but uh, so I'm not saying that you need to spend you know three hours you know in a room by yourself. Just Lord, you know, I'm just preparing my heart. Nate's going to talk about you today. You know, I just want to be ready. But you can just do it like this. When you're worshiping before the teaching time, please use that as a time to allow the Holy Spirit to prepare your heart for the way of the Lord. It's really not a time to check your email. It's not a time to be distracted with other things. It's a time to allow your heart to be prepared for what we're going to interact with throughout the whole gospel of Mark. So I'm just so looking forward to being in this book together with you. It's going to take us forever to get through it. So just letting you guys know, it's going to take a long time. We'll finish Genesis, and we'll probably finish Exodus, and maybe even Leviticus on Tuesday nights before we're done with the book of Mark. But I got the microphone, so I get to do that. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.